Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. This is Steve Orleans, President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and we've recently seen the conclusion of the sixth plenum of the 19th Party Congress, where there has been a resolution with the very catchy title called Major Achievements and Historical Experience of the Party Over the Past Century. So what we've done is gather two of the leading experts, I should say in North America, since one of us is in Canada um, on this. And Jude Blanchett, who is the Freeman Chair in China Studies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, uh, and Diana Fu, who is Associate Professor at the University of Toronto in the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. What's most important, of course, what I should say about both of them is they are both members of the National Committee's Public Intellectuals Program, where we spend an enormous amount of time selecting the outstanding young academics in North America, mostly in the United States, to serve in the program with a view of getting them to be public intellectuals. That is getting them to participate in the public dialogue on China and on US-China relations, educating America about China and being a voice for education. And this program today is a perfect example of exactly what our public intellectuals uh, should be doing. So I welcome you both uh, and thank you for giving us so generously of your time. And let me start out with Diana. So this is in the hundred year um, history of the Chinese Communist Party. This is the third time that we've had this kind of historical resolution. Talk about the first two times and what that tells us about this. Yeah, thank you, Steve, for that question and and also for inviting me to join the program. So what we've seen with the third um, historical resolution is that it basically sets the vision and tone for a new chapter in China's history, which is the next hundred year of CCP rule. And I would say that it's not necessarily um, a surprising document, But it is an important one. It is an important resolution because of its timing. Because as you mentioned, this is a historical juncture between the first centenary of the CCP, the first 100 100 years of its rule, and the second one. Uh, And of course, Xi Jinping is the helmsman leading the country into this new chapter. And in doing so, um, has elevated himself to sort of the same uh, pantheon of leaders as the two giants who issued the past two resolutions, uh, who are Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping. Um, And I don't wanna go too much into the substance of the two past resolutions, but I will say that the difference in this third one compared to the previous two is that there's a difference in substance and a difference in purpose. So in terms of substance, it's different from the other two historical resolutions because it is not trying to tackle a historical problem. Um, And it is also, instead of tackling a historical problem, it basically centers on the major achievements of the party um, and in the historical experience of the party. 
Uh, and so it's different and, and basically it's summarized by, you know, a Global Times report that I was just reading, basically that the party has proved to be great, the party is glorious, and the party is correct. And I would, I think that's a very good summary of what the substance of this, uh, the general gist of this resolution is. But talk about the first two and why they actually occurred, and then talk about why the party felt the need to have this one. Was it simply just an anniversary? Obviously, the first two didn't occur on anniversaries of any sort. Um, they were driven by other factors. So try to contrast those first two with this one. I might kick that over to Jude, um, and then I'll, I can speak more, uh, circle back to the his, uh, why, why the Communist Party cares about history. Jude. Yeah, sure. Um, so the base assessment is a his historical resolution is, is meant to be used by a leader to solve a problem they have in front of them. And so if we go back to the first time that a the history resolution had been utilized, it was by Mao Zedong in 1945, when it came out at the seventh plenary session uh, of the Sixth Central Committee. And, and this is a really important time. Mao has just come off of a three-year rectification movement where he has been attempting to essentially beat off various um, lines of Communist Party thinking and strategy. Um, and so Mao had essentially consolidated power after fending off some foes, but now wanted to institutionalize that in, in ideology and theory. And thus comes in the history resolution, which he passes, where he now looks back on the party's experience, but with a very precise goal of essentially declaring that there is only one line and it is Mao Zedong line. And so he was fighting off, there was a, a right op opportunist line, there was a leftist deviationist line, and, and Mao was essentially saying, there's only one way and it's my way. The 1981 resolution was doing something fundamentally different in terms of its substance, but still it had that same underlying purpose of being used by then Deng Xiaoping um, to essentially um, uh, forge a path forward by, by quote unquote dealing with the past. And, and very simply what Deng understood is, um, you know, after assuming power in 78, 79, he knew that there was a lot of lingering baggage of the Mao era that was weighing down the, the reform and opening agenda. And so what Mao, or excuse me, Freudian slip, what Deng wanted to say was, look, okay, I hear you. We're gonna deal with this Maoist past. We're gonna draw a line under it and then we're done. It's time to move forward. And this, of course, was when, um, I, I, shockingly at the time, but uh, uh, Deng did admit some of the major mistakes that Mao made, but the aggregate conclusion was, in the main, Mao was a, a figure of, of, um, uh, of great importance to China. His, his uh, achievements far outweighed his shortcomings. And what's interesting, just quickly, is if you look back at Mao, excuse me, Deng's notes as he was reading various drafts of the 1980 resolution, He's always pushing back against some of the more hardline um, revisionist rhetoric against Mao, saying, don't go too far here. If you tear Mao down too far, the, the, the foundation, the ideological foundation of the party may be threatened. So again, resolution number one, intra-party rectification and fighting, setting the right ideological line. Resolution number two is about drawing a line under the Maoist period and saying, all right, folks, we're done with that time to look forward. Yeah. I was living in China at the time of what I guess was the third plenum of the 11th Party Congress when this when Deng engineered this this resolution. And there was palpable tension 
that that people would almost be afraid. You know, I was there as part of reform and opening that people would be afraid to almost talk with me because that if they were they were fearful of a comeback of the cultural revolution of the Maoists and that they would be taken down for having an association with them at, at that point in time, a foreign lawyer. So there was need for this resolution. But today, why? Wait, I don't know. Sadly, none of us can go to China these days, but I don't have a sense of this tension. Am I missing something? Just quickly, I would say that every, so the, the because we start with the baseline assessment that a, a history resolution doesn't have a, a generic purpose, it has a specific purpose based on the leader's needs at the time. And I think quite clearly what Xi Jinping is trying to do is to say, um, the challenges that lay ahead of the party over the next 15 years through this 2035 goal of building a modern socialist nation are fundamentally different from the challenges that the party has had to deal with and overcome over the reform and opening period. And so we need to fundamentally reshift the way that we're looking at the, the role of the party, but critically, because these challenges are so great, we need a steady hand on the tiller. Um, I am the one to lead this era and I think at a more grandiose level, Xi Jinping has been saying since the 19th Party Congress, we're in this new era. You know, this is, if it was, if it was standing up under Mao, if it was getting rich under Deng, it's now getting strong. And so I think he sees the resolution as a way to really orient the troops towards that new goal. But finally, of course, he wants to stay in power. And you, when we get the final text of the resolution, we've just gotten the communique, but you see within that clearly he's positioning himself as the, the, the only man for the job who can lead this country uh, over a longer time horizon. So I think it's both personal preservation and expansion of power within the system, but also about orienting everyone in the right direction, which is what the previous two resolutions were needed to do. Why has the resolution not been published in full? I don't think that's that unusual. When you come out of major party convenings, it's often a few days, uh, a lag time before you get the final text. As a functional matter, I agree. It's a little curious. Obviously, as they told us, this was already well approved. So the final text is sitting there. Um, I, I don't know functionally why they have these delays. We, we, um, but th it's not uncommon to have them. I, I just don't know what functional purpose they serve to wait till early next week to release it. One idea might be, um, especially with the resolution, you want the plenum to have its own time to soak in the messaging coming out of the plenum communique, which is distinct, although overlaps to some extent with the resolution. Then you have the resolution come out early next week. So that way you're not essentially crowding out the, the top line narrative from the communique, which was one, Xi Jinping is in charge and he's going to be in charge for a very long time. If I might just jump in there, uh, Steve, just to go back to your question about why now and why this emphasis on history, I think to extend on what Jude has said about galvanizing the people to really be behind the next, you know, centenary and, and be behind the next part of Xi Jinping's rule, this, his third term, there's also, I had also been reflecting upon this question of what purpose does revisiting history and making sure that everyone is um, digesting and um, propagating the correct history. What, what is that? Why, why do that? You know, why look to the past? And I think that the answer to that is that it's very important for the party and for Xi Jinping himself to secure legitimacy 
not only through securing economic growth, but also through securing people's hearts and minds. And I think this is something that is um, that has challenged me to think about Chinese politics in a, in a different way, because a lot of people, um, a lot of commentators, uh, at least previously, have said that, oh, China's CCP's legitimacy rests on GDP growth, rests on continuous GDP growth. And if that GDP growth, you know, sort of stops or slows down, then, you know, they're going to have a riot on their hands um, or a social movement on their hands. But I think also that that's true that economic growth and delivering material benefits to people is a very important part of legitimacy. But I think what you see from this um, emphasis on history, not just in the plenum, but in general on in Xi Jinping's broader political um, agenda, is that he really believes and the party really believes that people have to buy into their ideologies, buy into the party's ideologies from a, at a heart level. And I think that's why you see, you, you we should read the plenum in the context of a number of other kinds of uh, references to history that that the Xi Jinping administration has really emphasized. And I'll just give you a very, very few quick examples that I think might help us um, contextualize the plenum's focus on history. Number one is that the party is attacking historical nihilism, which is basically any sort of critical narrative about the party's rule. And so there's actually, as of April of this past year, there was actually a hotline set up for people to report on historical nihilism. And so it's a tip line that allows people to report fellow citizens who distort the party's history and attack the leadership and basically says anything that's kind of off, you know, off, off the books of what the official history is. And there's also apparently a new law implemented to make it a crime to defame historical heroes. Um, and be besides that historical nihilism attack, there's also, we've seen under Xi Jinping, a, a reinvigorated drive for patriotic education. Now, education is important, civic education is important for any regime, but the importance of patriotic education under Xi cannot be overstated because it's captured by the slogan, instruction in revolutionary traditions must start with toddlers. So you gotta get at them young basically, and you gotta make sure that people are learning the history of the party young. And then thirdly, this patriotic education has been accompanied by a push for red tourism, you know, touring red museums and memorials, and she really makes a point of going to such places during his travels. So I think what the, all of this is telling us is that history is important, not just because, you know, the party wants to tell a good story about itself, but it's important to consolidating Xi's uh, power and to place himself as a historical figure within this broader narrative of China. And that's that's one, that's a central part of his consolidation of power for the third um, term. Do we know how many drafts this resolution went through? And was there any kind of, have we learned, was there any resistance? Is there any resistance to this? We will, um, the short answer is no, but we will, what we will likely get as we got um, after uh, uh, 19th Party Congress, for example, is we'll get some sort of report about the, the drafting process. So right now, really, what we would go off of is our nearest best example, which is the, the 81 resolution, which in Deng Xiaoping's collected works, you can go read what I think is actually arguably more interesting than the resolution itself is it's Deng's successive comments 
on the drafts of, of the resolution, which was then being written by Hu Chaomu. And that shows us that at least for Deng, the process started in March, 1980, and the document was then released in, uh, what was it, June 2781. And I think it went through eight or nine major iterations. Deng also said that they put the draft to the full central committee. Now, of course, the thing with Xi Jinping is he doesn't always operate by the same procedures or standards. And I suspect that timeline for Deng's resolution was based on, as you mentioned, Steve, just the extraordinary sensitivities around dealing with Mao that, as you say, Xi Jinping isn't dealing with. I don't suspect that this was went through a year plus of of drafts, and we don't know who the lead uh, architect of this, although you may imagine someone like Wang Huning would have been intimately involved, as well as the, the internal historians in the Communist Party. One final note, though, is we, we saw, as Diana just mentioned, a proliferation of historical writing and narratives coming out of the party over this past year, including a, a major uh, work on the, a short history of the party that came out earlier of this year. I have no doubt that these were going on in concurrence. So I would imagine when we finally hear the timeline for this, it would have been over the past you know, six, nine months. It will undoubtedly say that Xi Jinping personally supervised this. Although in reality, what we would know is it would be historians within the party apparatus, probably with someone like Wang Huning, overseeing the sort of regular drafting with, with occasional drafts being kicked up to Xi Jinping for, for, his, uh, for his input. I think it's fair to assume that he read this quite a number of times and read it thoroughly <laughs> and did have his own edits. I think that's the, <laughs> uh, a very yes. fair, a very fair uh, if, I, if I might jump in again, Steve, um, sure. you asked about you know, resistance to it. And it's hard to know, it's hard to read internal, you know, party conflicts unless you're right there in the room. But I think my sense is that, um, and aside from elite politics, that normal people um, that are consuming this story of China, consuming this history of China, in the, line, in the lead up to the centenary, there was a huge propaganda uh, boom uh, of films, right, that accompanied the, the party centenary. And my sense is that at the grassroots level, that ordinary people really do buy into to some of this storytelling. And I, and I think, and I, I mentioned this because some of our audience might be interested in some of these films, um, these series. I started watching a series called Mining Town. I don't know if either Jude or Steve had a chance to, to, to read, uh, to, to not read it, but to, <laughs> to watch it. But it's a, it got a huge, like, really, really high support um, uh, from people, like in terms of thumbs up. Um, it was a huge hit with Chinese audience and it basically describes the hardships of the party's most grassroots officials in the villages of Qinghai, which is a very underdeveloped region. It was so poor in the 1990s that men in one family had to share a pair of pants. So like one of the first episodes without spoiling it is like they have to actually take turns to wear pants. And in this poor village, you have this protagonist, Ma Fu, who is a young, you know, aspiring grassroots cadre who has to convince all of his fellow villagers to resettle the village to a region with better development prospects. And it really shows the painstaking process through which grassroots officials, um, grassroots CCP um, members, the cadres had to go through to pers do persuasion politics, to persuade each and every one of these 60 families, 59 families to move to a different part of, um, of, of, uh, of, the, of the province. And I think that basically through these kinds of storytelling, that's very vivid, it connects to the ordinary people. 
it, you know, normal people are not going to be reading plenums. Uh, neither Americans nor Chinese are going to be reading these draft documents. So they they're going to be digesting it from from these kind of you know propaganda films and really showcases the party's achievements through of poverty alleviation. And of course, this is something that she has. Um, you know, trumpeted as one of the successes of the of the cent first centenary, which is that extreme poverty had been ended, eradicated in 2020. So I think basically uh, to the listeners who are not going to be reading the tea leaves um, or, or don't don't read Chinese that these these kinds of films with English subtitles available on YouTube are a very good way to understand how the party wants to portray itself in its history. Those movies sound more interesting than reading through the, the communique. <laughs> That's right. I, I'm not sure how many people have had to plow through it, but it's a uh, whew, it's not a gripping read. Um, how should we what what are the policy implications for this? Either of you. Uh, I think these are likely to be pr profound in part because this is undoubtedly trying to further consolidate or or put an issue you know additional momentum behind some of these policy shifts that we've been seeing from Xi Jinping over the past year I would say that the history resolution will be the master narrative that will provide the sort of ideological sort of framing for whether this is common prosperity we've got things like the new development concept dual circulation and indeed in just the communique you see a lot of the themes that that are, are coming out about the world that China is now engaged with, right? So profound changes unseen in a century, this complex and grim international environment, the need to um, uh, uh, shift a focus to qualitative growth over quantitative growth. So uh, when we get the full history resolution, that master narrative will undoubtedly facilitate um, policy implementation. And I would say, you know, I was just rereading Franz Sherman's, you know, marvelous book on ideology in the Communist Party. And, you know, he makes the really interesting point that, you know, part of the point of some of these documents, sometimes when you have these vague communist sounding slogans is they're designed to be discussed and debated over and over and over and over again in your party organization, your party cell, such that you start internalizing the message and it, it sort of interlinks with policies that are coming down from the top. So, you know, I, one way I'd think about this is about sort of greasing the skids for the policy moves that Xi Jinping is looking to be making. And I think right now we're already seeing a pretty clear articulation of that policy agenda right now, started at the 19th Party Congress by shifting that principal contradiction to this, this, this focus on, on, on qualitative growth. And now you're really seeing the party emphasis behind it doesn't mean the end of capitalism, doesn't mean the end of capital markets, but it does, I think, usher in a more redistributive um, era of, of Chinese growth. And that's why you're seeing a focus on, let's say, tax reform starting to starting to bubble up, uh, corporate tax, property tax reform projects, um, various elements of, of, an, of a sort of immature welfare state that they're going to try to address. I think all of these will flow from this new master narrative. Um, and just to, to pick up on, sorry, Steve, did you have a? No, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, I was just going to pick up on what Drew was just talking about in terms of um, common prosperity. And now to circle back to something that you asked earlier, Steve, about whether there's any contradictions or conflicts or debates within the party, sort of the one indication we have of, uh, of sort of a public debate um, about 
you know, one of Xi Jinping's landmark, I wouldn't even say policy, I would say it's a campaign for common prosperity is around, is around this common prosperity notion, which is basically, uh, you know, this redis calling for redistribution of wealth, or at least the optics of redistrib redistribution of wealth so that the common people, the regular Lao Baixing, have a good and prosperous life. And they're not, um, they're not seeing, you know, the wealthy 1% grab everything. And, 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 and that's sort of like one of Xi Jinping's major agendas for the next um, for the next term. And so he wants to basically tell people that this CCP, this party is not just a party for the Jock Ma's, it's a party for the common people. But the way he's gone about, his administration has gone about it has really um, sort of shocked some par parts of the population and shocked observers, right? And here I'm thinking about the crackdown on tech that we saw in the summer, right? That all of a sudden these, these tech companies that had enjoyed a lot of priority and had been pushed forth to the um, to grow by the Communist Party became the targets of the party all of a sudden. And so earlier this year, um, you saw this fall, you saw this um, a glimpse of maybe what was called a debate between a little known journalist like Li Guangmen, who wrote, you know, maybe this is ushering in a Culture Revolution 2.0, and then you had a response by uh, Hu Xijing of the Global Times attacking him. And so maybe this is an indication of there, that there is tension within the party. Um, we just have a glimpse of it from the outside, but common prosperity and how that is achieved moving forward, I think is something to be watching, uh, that we should be watching for. Yeah, I, I think there are a bunch of signals that they're there's not a uniform view within the party. One of the things we've been focusing on in the committee just in the last few weeks is kind of, you know, China has asked to join the CPTPP. They've asked to become a member of this digital economy partnership. This is, there has to be somebody who in the, in, on the party, in the government, who's willing to say, this is good for China. It, it seems so inconsistent with the laws that are currently being passed. So it's almost as if they're speaking with two completely different voices. And I think the voice of the sixth plenum is one which doesn't particularly side with CPTPP advocates, digital economy partnership advocates, and a variety of other things, which still seem to move ahead in, in fits and starts. I guess the next part is, you know, what does it mean for the home team? What, is, what does this mean for uh, US-China relations? Um, you know, are there any implications? Do we just ignore it? Uh, do we just take into account that obviously we're gonna be dealing with Xi Jinping for many, many, many more years? Yeah, I think the, 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 the you know, initial assessment is, yes, what you just said, right? Where I don't think anyone was baking in a leadership change anytime soon, but this, this well nigh confirms it. I think this, the, the second thing too is, you know, there's this debate in the United States that somehow, you know, Xi Jinping is, um, uh, is being boxed in by opposition or, or he's, he feels like he's running out of time because Evergrande and, you know, energy crisis. And, and you know, I think, Looking at the the rhetoric coming out of the the plenum, I think it's pretty clear that Xi Jinping is sitting pretty good, and so for the U.S. that means we're dealing with a fundamentally confident leader. I think this will be on display. You know, we're, we're taping this just ahead of the the um, tete a tete, uh, the virtual tete a tete with Biden and Xi, um, and I think this is well understood by the Biden administration that they're they're not dealing with a um, 
with China from 10 years ago. This is a much, much more confident um, and, and assertive China. I also think, you know, to your point, Steve, about thinking about some of the policy implications of this, um, it's, it's really hard for me to see, again, with Xi Jinping now so, so, so commandingly in charge and now seeing the set of objectives that he has that China needs to achieve over the next decade, which he thinks are gonna be aided and facilitated by China's state capitalist model. He's not walking away from that given the stakes. You think about the, the conversation going on right now between Liu He and Catherine Tai. I imagine it's easier on the tariff front when you, once you start pushing through that, which she has said one of their concerns is what she called it a state-centered economic model as being one of the primary concerns from the United States. China ain't backing down from that by any stretch of the imagination in a very core way. And Xi Jinping has been saying this over and over. What's interesting to me is what you just said, which is I almost feel like there's a bit of a bifurcation here between domestic and international policy. And, and the interesting space where I, I sense Xi Jinping is more open to some technocratic input and a little bit more flexible um, is in thinking about international trade and investment regimes. I don't sense that same flexibility from him in the in the domestic front. Great, Diana. Yeah, I I mean I agree with uh, pretty much what uh, Jude has said, but I also wanted to point out that in addition to the U.S. now dealing with a Xi that is more confident than ever, I think you could add to that that the U.S. is also going to be dealing with a Chinese public that is more confident than ever in the achievements of the CCP. And also in um, in the achievements of, uh, of, of of a strong leader that has led them out of uh, COVID in a way that you know you, that the Chinese perceive the U.S. Has, leaders did not. So um, I think one of the interesting um, things that I've been looking at is a recent survey um, which says that you know Chinese citizens hold a very dismally low view of the US. So it's not just that Americans and Canadians and you know other people hold uh, Western populations hold a dismal view of China, that Chinese also hold a very dismal view of the US. And interestingly, that China, they believe that China is positively perceived by the world. Now that's a really interesting and surprising finding, right? That they, not only do they believe that the US is um, you know, the bad guy, but they also believe that other people outside of the uh, US actually think that China is leading. So I think what you're seeing is this increasing sort of divergence in public opinion, increasing divergence in sort of the information bubbles that people get their information from. And so um, to the extent that public opinion does matter, even for an unelected uh, 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 government in China, I think that what you're seeing is that it's going to be very hard for people to see eye to eye when you have the public just going in way polarizing views, um, polarizing, you know, opinions about the status of China and of America. So I think it's going to be, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of this meeting. Um, I think that there's low expectations um, between uh, Biden and uh, Xi, but it'll be interesting to see how they reconcile um, that, that um, if they can make any reconciliations based on, given that there's such divergent views from the two different populations. What did you make of the minor um, and mild comments on Hong Kong and Taiwan? In, in the communique? Um, yeah. Um, yeah, interesting. Um, I guess I wouldn't have thought that the communique would be a document at which you would announce any sort of substantive change. Again, this is where we're, we're again, we're recording before we get the full 
text on this. Um, I don't suspect that there's going to be any any market shift on language on Taiwan from what Xi Jinping, forget the action, but what Xi Jinping has been stating, which is fairly consistent with the previous leadership. Um, but that will be that will be very interesting to put under a, a, a magnifying glass, especially on the Taiwan issue, because of course the big question right now is trying to get a sense of does Xi Jinping still feel like he has enough time? Um, is there still a window here? And we didn't get enough of that glimpse in the communique, just had a line on, you know, crushing separatists, but it did end by saying essentially, we're, we're in a position of strength vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. And I think in a way that's, that's almost good to hear because it signals that they're still, again, officially assessing that they've got time on their side. When they start declaring that tides are turning against them, I think we'll, we'll, we should start to get worried. The communique talked about holding the 20th Party Congress, Ar Shaddai, in the second half of 2020, 22. Uh, what does that, what does that mean? When is it likely would occur? What are the uh, contents going to be of the 20th Party Congress? Uh, I'll take a stab first. Um, I thought the 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 vagary of that announcement was interesting. I don't know if that's actually just a quirk of party language. Um, um, I guess they could have said the fall of, of 2022. I think it's partly, I would imagine that's just building in some flexibility and, and maybe getting to something we were talking about, which is their concern over COVID, their extreme concern over COVID on the zero tolerance approach. They may have the equivalent of, of having a growth target of you know, around 6%. They may just be giving themselves some buffer, but clearly if we're going by precedence, we'll see it in October or, no, or November, um, which, is, which is the likely uh, time here. So I think on the timing, I wouldn't read too much into it. I think we're pretty well assured it'll be, you know, late, it, it'll, be, um, it'll be sweater season next year when, when the plenum will occur. In terms of what the substance of it will be, I mean, this is the big one, right? I think this is, this is not an ordinary plenum, or excuse me, an ordinary party Congress. This is a very specific purpose, which is, Xi Jinping is a student of party history. He knows that, that taking a third term in, in China in 2021 is a pretty extraordinary event. I suspect what he'll do is two things. Number one, I think continue the momentum that he's building now about the, the direction China is going. Um, you've seen some of the, the, I think the verbiage already in the communique, a man of determination, of steel, of excellence, the wisest of the wise, um, but really what he's trying to say is now is not the time to swap out, you know, not to, to hand over the tiller. But I think more, more importantly, what he'll try to do to tie something that Diana said is, this is as much a public justification about the great glorious time ahead for China. Um, and so I think it will be trying to balance a little bit of, look, now is a challenging time. Let's not swap out the leader. That's why I'm staying in. But more importantly, it's brighter days ahead. And so I think this will be a celebration of, how much China has achieved, but this will be forward-looking into you know the next the 20, 21st Party Congress or 20th Party Congress period of five years, um, in, in which we can expect bigger, brighter, shinier things from from a third-term Xi administration. Diana, yeah, I, I actually um, don't have too much to add on that front in terms of predicting what will happen in um, 2022 because 
you know, uh, the risk averse side of me being a scholar says don't make predictions in case you're wrong. However, I do have something um, to say about Hong Kong, and that's not particular to the plenum. But I think that in terms of, um, you know, circling back to this theme of, you know, the public justification of the CCP and of Xi Jinping, I think Hong Kong is, um, is something to watch for in terms of being the most important um, ideological battlefront for the CCP as we're, as we're heading into 2022, uh, 2023, because the party in the past has tried to uh, introduce patriotic education to Hong Kong. They failed to do that in 2012 because of weeks of protests by parents and students over Beijing's, what they saw as Beijing's attempts to brainwash children. Now, following the 2020 national security law, um, it'll be interesting and important to watch for how Beijing is reintroducing patriotic education in Hong Kong because they need to, they, and this is captured, and their goal in Hong Kong is captured by a, a um, quote by a Beijing official that, you know, students educated in Hong Kong must not turn into individuals who only have a Chinese face, but do not carry a Chinese heart. And so I think the next goal in terms of, you know, securing support, not just in mainland China, but also in Hong Kong, is that they got to make sure that the in the next generation, there's going to be no more Josh Wong's or Agnes Chow's or other young people that are going to be deviating from the party, and they're going to start very young in Hong Kong. So I think that's going to be something to watch for on the societal front. And in the communique, they said they want want to make sure Hong Kong is ruled by patriots. Exactly. What, so it's precisely exactly. what you're saying. We have run out of time, but you have upheld the tradition of PIP and done a fabulous job in educating our listeners on something that it's, I think, been very difficult for Americans to get their arms around, which is the sixth plenum of the, of the 19th Party Congress. And looking forward, or looking forward with interest at the, the 20th Party Congress um, in around a year from now. But thank you both for being Pippers and thank you both for giving so generously of your time. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.